This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's brand new issue, Death Wish, is now available in print and online, and it is full of great pieces that Dig listeners will enjoy. One that might be of particular interest is Consequences of Deferred Maintenance, an essay by the editors. The piece situates the Trump administration's mismanagement of the pandemic within a longer history of deregulation from the right. Quote, The deregulatory impulse has a distinctly temporal quality, instilling the slow seep of future degradation even as immediate consequences are typically non-existent, the editors write. Killing long days by walking across New York's many structurally deficient bridges, it occurred to us that this is how COVID has felt too. Even if deregulation is only one of a litany of factors that led to the U.S.'s inability to respond to the pandemic in a responsible or even minimally humane way. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout, the dig, one word, no spaces, T-H-E-D-I-G. Enter that at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive, all for less than $3 a month. That's NPLUS. O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is my interview with Gabe Winant, a historian and one of the most incisive essayists around. Over the last year-ish, Gabe has written three pieces for N Plus One that together add up to a remarkably comprehensive assessment of the present state of U.S. politics and economics and society. And I cannot remotely do justice to summarizing the interview that follows in this introduction. But... It's really good. I will link to the three essays in the show notes. We Live in a Society, published on December 12th, Coronavirus and Chronopolitics, published on March 23rd, and Professional Managerial Chasm, published on October 10th, 2019. I will also link to an interview that Gabe conducted for dissent with long-term care worker and union leader Shantonia Jackson. Before we get started, this podcast only exists. I can only do this for a living without any paywall to anyone, regardless of listeners' ability to pay, because many of you who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you've been meaning to support us for a while, even a few bucks goes a long way. If you donate at least $10 a month, you will get a free book or books in the mail as a thank you. Also, please consider joining a dig book club you can discuss the books that we discuss on the show with other listeners and then meet on Zoom to discuss them with the authors of the books. 
Next up is Resource Radicals from Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador by DIG Senior Advisor Thea Riofrancos. To join a DIG book club, visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here is Gabe Winant, a professor of history at the University of Chicago. His book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Manufacturing and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, will be published by Harvard University Press in March of this year. Oh, one last thing before we get started. I forgot to note at the time that my interview with Stephanie Mudge was produced by Jesse Brenneman. Alex Lewis was on vacation. Thank you, Jesse. Gabe Winant, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. You write, quote, the overwhelming majority of strikes in the last two years arose in either healthcare or education. And that was before the pandemic. And both those sectors, of course, have been amongst the most heavily impacted with ICU beds overflowing and teachers toggling between remote and in-person learning. Prior to COVID, had workers been striking over the very conditions that the pandemic has now exposed? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Healthcare and education share some very important features, and they're also distinguished from each other in important ways. But, you know, I think what we had been seeing the beginning of, going back a couple of years now, is the kind of long-term toll of austerity on both of those sectors interacting with their increasing labor market footprint and social importance. So that uh, healthcare and social assistance, which is a census-designated category, is the largest sector of employment in the country. Uh, it's about 14% of all employment. Education is about another 10% of all employment, uh, give or take. So the, the weight of those workforces under the pressure of, in a variety of ways, cutbacks to their conditions of work and the conditions of learning and caring for their patients and students was producing what I think we sort of can recognize as an incipient moment or episode of class formation. And I don't think we should overstate it, right? It's not as though every teacher and nurse in the country was on strike, but strike activity did climb to a level not seen since the mid-80s, and it was driven overwhelmingly by those two workforces. Now, the dynamics, which I've been calling austerity, uh, forcing that, have to do with privatization at work in both of those industries, the way that privatization and pressure on uh, productivity limits ultimately that affect both those industries are playing out in the form of understaffing and overwork as well as uh, wages. And understaffing and overwork, I think, are pretty good names for a central dimension of vulnerability in COVID-19. I don't think we've seen the upsurge in labor militancy that many on the left anticipated or, or hoped for at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you agree? And if so, why do you think that is? And could, and could it be, in fact, that it's after the pandemic that labor militancy explodes with pent-up anger boiling over and labor workers making demands in line with what the pandemic has exposed to be the value of their work and as recompense for what they've been through and, and put up with for so many months? Well, I hope that's true. Um, I mean, I, I'm reluctant to make a prediction about it. I think on the one hand, you know, I think there is a quite vast array, larger than we really are able to keep track of, 
of small scale episodes of confrontation between workers and their employers over over working conditions in the pandemic. Uh, I mean, most significantly in education, you know, the fact that many school systems have stayed remote, uh, have not forced people back into work has much to do with the unusually high levels of organization and recent history of militancy in that industry, right? As opposed to almost everyone else in the economy whose boss is happy to force them back to work, you know, as soon as as soon as they have, feel the pressure to do so and want to do so. Now, that may not always manifest in the form of, uh, you know, wildcat strikes or teacher walkouts or whatever, but we can trust that there are conversations among teachers, probably not so much in person, but, you know, online, over the phone, about, you know, did you hear what the principal or more likely what the superintendent is trying to make us do? You know, that's uh, it's not okay. What do you think about that? That certainly has been happening on a national scale. Uh, similarly, in, you know, in healthcare, I think there's a huge array of small moments of resistance around, you weren't going to tell me that patient has COVID or, you know, you can't make me use that mask again or things like that, right? It has not, you're right though, that it has not cashed out in the form of a kind of national strike wave of the kind that we might hope hope and wish for. You know, I, I think that's frankly uh, still something we need to explain, but the best answer I can give for it is the climate of national emergency, which makes momentary resistance possible and makes sustained resistance very, very difficult. Again, that's an exaggeration of an existing dynamic in the caring industries, right? Where there's a kind of leverage that comes from the very real needs of the clients for your work. You know, nurses don't want their patients to die. There's a kind of leverage that comes from that. And there's a kind of um, leverage on the worker that also comes from that. Right. Because teachers might not want to walk out on their students right now. Same with nurses and their patients. But those same demands and issues will, will be there when it would feel less problematic, I guess, to strike. Right. Uh, and I also think, you know, we have to face up to the fact that organized labor is in no shape to take on the, uh, take on this situation. Uh, you know, in healthcare in particular, the labor movement is intensely fragmented in numerous ways, right? So there's one, there's the fragmentation between nurses and service and maintenance and technical workers who, if nurses are unionized, they are very rarely in the same union as so-called less skilled workers. Those workers themselves are often parceled out across different bargaining units and this kind, of, this kind of thing. So that even a union hospital could easily have four or five or six different unions, not to mention, of course, the many non-union hospitals out there and non-union nursing homes. You know, at the lower levels of the skill skill spectrum, it, again, so-called skill, in care with nursing homes, which obviously have been a kind of major center of the labor question of the pandemic, the workers are intensely replaceable. You know, they... That doesn't mean they're not militant in some way and have, aren't willing to fight or resist management, again, in day-to-day ways. But it is a fact that they are drawn from a generally overfull labor pool. And the labor movement has not yet figured out how to establish a connection between workers' needs and demands in, in the industry and a kind of broader social question about how we deliver care. Whereas educators, again, have gone further on that in, in connecting the needs of students to their own working conditions. Are there situations where teachers' unions represent more staff than, than just teachers? You know, it, there, there are sometimes in particular paraprofessionals, um, but often you do get also like custodians, service workers, food service in different unions on, on school campuses. However, the occupational structure is much less stratified, right? So who, who works in a school? 
uh, you know, you imagine an elementary school, right? There are a few custodians. There's, you know, a handful of people who work in the cafeteria. There's the administration and the administrative staff. And then there's the teachers and the teachers are going to outnumber everyone else. In a hospital, on the other hand, you have a much more elaborately and finely gradated hierarchy, right? Stretching from the people at the bottom of that hierarchy in terms of wages who clean the rooms, uh, you know, handle the garbage, make the food, all the way up to the doctors, right? Uh, and specialists and so on. And then ultimately the administrators. And there are innumerable steps in between them. Uh, and there's no one vast kind of rank equivalent to the teachers in the schools. How do you think that the economic unevenness of this crisis has shaped the politics around it? Because while so many service workers have lost their jobs and so many people find themselves in such deeply untenable positions at work and at home, and particularly the combination of at work and at home, and millions of other people, of course, end up sick or dead. At the same time, professionals who work from home have more money than ever. And it's not just professionals. The initial federal response with stimulus checks and extended and expanded unemployment sent poverty rates down to record lows. So there's a sense that we're in this world historic economic crisis, but it's been experienced on the ground in such complex and divided ways. What what impact has that had, do you think? Well, I think that uh, emergency character of it and the way that emergency sets people and forces into motion has been contained and managed and doled out unevenly in time and, you know, socially, as you say. And, you know, maybe that can lead to, maybe that's bottling up energy, right? That, as you're suggesting, that can kind of explode once the crisis is over. You know, the equivalent here would be um, in 1946, after the demobilization from World War II, the U.S. had the largest strike wave in its history. Uh, 5% of all Americans went on strike. Not, not the workforce, but the population went on strike in 1945-46. There are general strikes in multiple cities and so on. Uh, and so maybe, you know, the uneven experience of national emergency uh, will kind of even itself out as we exit a total crisis situation, you know, over the coming year. However, I think it's just as credible or probably more cred more plausible that, you know, the delinking of fates between capital and the segments of the workforce broadly construed that are kind of more closely or higher up on, on, on the income ladder and are more closely connected to the fate of uh, capital markets, i.e., uh, you know, managers and professionals and so on, their fates are going to be increasingly delinked from the working class. And I think, you know, the growth of the of capital markets and the kind of huge prosperity of the richest through this whole period of time suggests that that's likely to continue. And that poses really serious problems for the left and for, you know, the question of working class organization and power, again, in terms of leverage, right? If their wealth doesn't actually depend on our production exactly in the same way that it's, we sort of think it used to anyway, what does that mean for how we can actually exercise some power? What about the politics of the sickness and the death and the the suffering? You, you interviewed Shantonia Jackson, a, a certified nursing assistant in Chicago at a long-term care facility for people with mental health issues. She's also the union shop steward there. She told you, quote, in America, we don't care about the elderly. They're about to die anyway. We don't care. We should have some respect because they have wisdom. That's a grandma. That's a grandpa. And someday you're going to be a grandma and you're going to be a grandpa. 
that that's that seems true and i think that mass death of of the elderly has become somewhat normalized the sense that they're already on their way out or something but but you've also written about how old people form the social basis for the same status quo system that's killing them how is it that old people wield so much power in a society that is massacring so many old people and that in so many ways just oppresses old people and diminishes their lives. Yeah, this is a really profound paradox, I think. So on the one hand, when we talk about the power of the old, the social power, the economic power of the old, you know, I think that we have to look over the course of the 20th century at the cohort, generational cohorts, which were party to a kind of tighter link between employment and social citizenship and social inclusion such that they generally gained access in a more broad-based, not universal, but more broad-based way to the social wage uh, in different forms. And, you know, I think the elderly cohort now, and to some extent those entering retirement at the moment, the baby boomers basically, are the kind of last groups to to have experience in a broad-based general, although again, not universal way, that kind of access to social citizenship through, you know, steady and increasingly steady over the course of a lifetime employment. That in turn was based on collective bargaining, right? I mean, the idea that your job gets better over the course of your lifetime, that comes from the principle of seniority, right? And that you are retired, you're secure when you retire. That was invented through class conflict in the 1920s and 30s, basically, in different ways. So through that process, which was ultimately sanctified in the form of Medicare in 1965, which genuinely universalized what had already kind of been a universal principle, the elderly gained a more secure social citizenship, a more secure claim on social benefits than the general population enjoys. They often also have it in privatized ways, right, through um, 401ks and pensions and retiree health care and different things like this. And that's a very important dimension to our politics, right? The uh, generational polarization of American politics is a new phenomenon in the grand scheme of things. If you go back to, say, the 1990s, you'll find that the parties don't do particularly better by any drastic measure in one generational cohort for, for as opposed to another. But by the late 2000s, and certainly our own time, both with, between the parties and then within the Democratic Party, there are very large age gaps, as we have all come to know. Again, the basic social basis of that is the defense of entrenched forms of social inclusion that the elderly had access to that successor cohorts do not have access to. At the same time, uh, what Shantonia said to me is obviously and undeniably true, right? That the elderly are a kind of stigmatized and marginalized group. We, we live in a society that worships youth. Right. And so, uh, so, so this is a kind of a structural contradiction in our society in different ways. We worship youth. We stigmatize and you know ostracize the elderly in many ways. And that, unsurprisingly, cashes out most significantly for the poor old, right? Um, Which, although the elderly are, as a group, less poor than younger generations, it does not mean that there are not poor people among them. Of course there are. And, you know, for those who have care needs that they're not able to meet through their own uh, economic and familial resources, they wind up on Medicaid, right? I mean, that's uh, Medicaid plugs a gap in Medicare around long-term care and is the only sustained 
public support for long-term care is through Medicaid, which is a poverty program, right? As opposed to Medicare, which is a universal program. And it's means-tested in extremely stringent and absurd ways as my partner, Theoria Franco, has just figured out with her with her dad. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. It's means-tested. Very often, economically marginal elders uh, have to kind of uh, pauperize themselves to qualify for it, right? Because they almost qualify for it, but they have a little bit too much of assets in one way or another, and they don't have any other way to get the care that they need. And so they have to um, become poorer in the eyes of, of the program in order to then qualify for the indefinite long-term care benefit. Uh, two-thirds of people in uh, in long-term care institutions are there paid by Medicaid. But Medicaid, as we all know, is the poor sibling of, of the healthcare system, right? It's because it's a poverty program, because it's jointly administered between states and the federal government. It does not reimburse providers at the same rate that either private insurance or Medicare does. There's a reason why we're not demanding Medicaid for all. Right. Uh, and there's a reason that in an effort to fend off Medicare for all, some, you may remember during the primary, some more moderate Democrats said, well, maybe we should do Medicaid for all, right? Um, <laughs> How about the shittier one? <laughs> right. Um, so uh, given the huge role, right, overwhelming role of Medicaid as the procurer of long-term care services, home care as well as institutional, given the extreme labor intensive intensiveness of long-term care, right? Which when you're buying long-term care, you're really buying human attention. I mean, there's some capital involved, right? There's a building, um, there's some there's some equipment, but it's not like a hospital, which is a much more capital intensive affair. You're really buying labor when you're buying long-term care or when Medicaid is buying long-term care for you. And given the low rates of reimbursement of a poverty program, uh, those things together give you the basis for the long-term care disaster that we have had this year, because our nursing homes are warehouses for the old, right? Are the, the poor elderly population of this country is a surplus population that we collectively have decided to dispose of in this way uh, by warehousing them. It's not the same thing as mass incarceration. I would rather be in a nursing home than a prison by a long shot, but it bears some comparison to mass incarceration. And that's why these two kinds of institutions have been home to this kind of parallel phenomenon. In the case of long-term care in particular, what it means is that it's in the interest of any given nursing home, which are largely private and are very often for profit and are very often increasingly uh, owned by private equity or something similar. It's in their interest to pack in as many patients into beds as they can and to service those patients with as few workers as they can. Now, what that's gonna mean is it's harder for the workers, even outside of the pandemic, to actually take care of patients' needs, right? To spend the time with them that they're supposed to spend. And every nursing home in the country before the pandemic, uh, where workers were organizing, the thing that they were basically organizing about was understaffing. Now, in the context of the pandemic, you have added to that the extra work, right, that's involved in keeping people isolated and taking care of their needs in isolation from each other. And that is altogether the recipe for the mass death of elders that we've seen and disabled people also um, and other kinds of vulnerable people. And in Rhode Island, I believe the most recent figures I could be slightly off around 70% of our COVID deaths have been in long-term care facilities and the highest community transmission rates have been 
particularly in heavily Latino working class neighborhoods. And so who staffs those long-term care facilities? It's a pretty pathological dynamic. Precisely. The county of major urbanized counties in America, the county with the largest portion of its workforce committed to healthcare and social assistance is the Bronx. And the reason for that is that the processes of deindustrialization and immiseration that have been playing out in urban America since the 1970s, right? we can all easily say, oh yeah, the Bronx is a place where those processes have played out to their maximal extent. And those processes give rise systematically to the healthcare workforce. Uh, right, they they generate it as a as a pool of available labor. So that then means that the very same people, in particular the women, work you know born in and working in places that have suffered the brunt of neoliberalism for a generation or two, um, are also the ones who now, in a variety of ways, have to manage its human consequences and its epidemiological consequences for themselves fundamentally. Right, and that. Another thing that I talked about with Shantonia in that interview is how many workers in this industry work in more than one institution, or they might they might do home care as well as nursing home care, uh, and in that way become vectors of the disease unwillingly. Uh, but that's about the working conditions on which long-term care runs. You write, quote, it is important to understand that chronopolitics is nothing more than the political and cultural modality in which class conflict in recent decades has appeared. The conflict between generations is not fundamental, but is rather the outcome of specific historical developments, which have turned age into the medium of conflicts flowing from the relations of property. But this does not make generational conflict superficial any more than the mediation of class through race makes race superficial. There is a genuine divergence in life chances and social power along the lines of age. Here, you're, you're referencing Stuart Hall's classic argument that race is the modality through which class is lived. Explain that argument and how you see generation as functioning, I guess, as like a materially entrenched form of identity under capitalism in ways that are similar and maybe also different to either race or class or gender. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the whole argument itself goes back to Gramsci or a combination of sort of Gramsci and Althusser and uh, some black radical thought in, from South Africa in particular. And I think to start with Gramsci is actually helpful because Gramsci reminds us that uh, consciousness, a phrase he uses that I like is consciousness is strangely composite. The It's not that being a worker means you know, or even a worker in a particular industry means that you, your ideology, your consciousness is therefore determined as one thing. Rather, there is a part of your consciousness, right? That is shaped by your experience of work and the way you make sense of that experience of work. There's another part of your consciousness that is shaped in the context of your family and, you know, on and on like this, right? By mass culture. I mean, Gramsci's line about this says, you know, there are parts of your consciousness that come from the stone age. I think, first of all, we have to bear that in mind. Then this helps us to see the way that economic determination, right? The power of property relations to define who we are and what we think about the world never occurs purely, right? Your, your uh, consciousness or your ideology or your sense of yourself as a social being is never unalloyed. Class is never the only thing that makes sense of who you are. Right, even for the most class conscious person possible, right? There's no pure form, unalloyed, an unalloyed form of class consciousness that can occur. It's always articulated, as Althusser and then Stuart Hall put it. It's always articulated 
to other features of the social formation that you inhabit. So the Hall piece that you, uh, or the, the famous Hall line is about the way that class and race articulate, both in general at the level of theory, uh, somewhat in the context of South Africa under apartheid, and then again in England in the, in the 70s. What I'm trying to do there with thinking, thinking it through in terms of age is to say, okay, uh, right, if race can take on a form in a given social formation that articulates it to class and gives class some of its meaning and racializes that meaning, if we can see with our you know, eyes plainly from our politics and from other sources how important age seems to be as a determinant of political behavior, then age must in some similar way be articulated to uh, class processes. I owe a lot here to Malcolm Harris's book, Kids These Days, um, which was the first place I read a serious version of this argument. And then, uh, you know, I kind of found elaborations of it in a lot of the sociological literature on the welfare states, uh, on comparative welfare states in the 1990s. Because in the 90s, you know, it was a kind of high moment of neoliberalism, uh, you know, struggles over austerity and welfare reform and this kind of thing across welfare states in the global north. And a number of sociologists and political scientists began to observe at least the possibility of generational polarization around struggles to extend or to contain the welfare state and basically argued for the or pointed out the risk of a serious divergence between the young and old. So the, the term chronopolitan. And this is including because of the way the general the generational divide becomes raced. Yes. Right. So first of all, right, as you say, younger generations in many Western countries or global Northern countries are less white than older generations. Right. And in social formations that are already racialized, where race is already articulated to class and making class meaningful, then anti-youth politics actually flows fairly cleanly from, you know, uh, existing forms of, of racist politics. It, there's a study of the Tea Party done by uh, the sociologist Theda Scotchpole um, and her colleague, I think, Vanessa Williamson. Yeah, it's a it's a great little book. Yeah, um, where they show that the Tea Party, you know, although they talk about uh, it's sort of official rhetoric is about small government and this kind of thing, free markets. The real animating force behind it is hostility to is a defense of the social entitlements of the middle of the white middle class and a hostility to the illegitimate claims on those entitlements from the young and from immigrants. A resistance to it being re their wealth being, whether this is a, a, a real thing or not, at least imagined being redistributed to black and brown youth schools or services or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, it was in the Tea Party that uh, we encountered the the phrase keep your government hands off my medicare right around the obamacare conflict <laughs> and people like to make fun of that obviously because and i understand it's why. a little fun it's a little funny because medicare is a social program <laughs> yeah uh, however i you know this is something that i insist on in this piece is that it's fine to laugh but actually people are saying something real when they say that right they're not just confused it's not just that they don't know that medicare is a government program what they're saying is this program serves me and not you Right. And so don't try to change it. We might disagree with that politics. I certainly do. But it's coherent. Right. It's not simply confused. Uh, and I think that's easier to understand once we uh, divorce ourselves from the idea that there is such a thing as correct and false consciousness. 
right? Once we let go of that, we can see this is actually a consciousness that makes sense from this person's position. The demographic common denominator of participants at this summer's mass protest movement against police violence was its youth. And and I wonder how that fits into your argument about chronopolitics, because the movement is mostly described as simply about police and about black lives. But I think it's important to look at who is protesting and not just what those protesters are saying. And the people protesting were overwhelmingly young and extremely diverse. And so it seems to me, and this is like a, a delicate subject, and I think that's why it hasn't been explored as much as it needs to be, it seems to me that a lot of what was driving people into the streets, white people in particular, those people couldn't fully articulate in the streets. People were saying Black Lives Matter, and I'm sure that they believe that. And I'm sure that people were deeply disturbed by George Floyd's murder. But I think it's impossible that it accounts for the entirety of why so many white people in particular were there, or so many Latino people, or Asians. Was there a broader implicit class politics to the protests, to what were on some level generational youth protests that that couldn't quite be fully expressed? I'm reluctant to say that there was a kind of real content that was obscured by the sort of superficial, explicit race politics content on the surface or something. Because again, you know, I think that the consciousness of all the participants, myself included, is contradictory in various ways. I do think, though, that what we could probably say uh, securely is that the institutions that have processed previous generations into political citizenship via inclusion in social citizenship, via organization in social and political uh, organizational forms, via, you know, economic opportunity. I mean, a whole host of, of mechanisms. Are, you know, we, they're breaking down, right? And that's, that's, that's part of the earlier discussion about how older generations successfully accessed layers of citizenship that younger generations have much less uneven access to. So as younger generations are not being processed as effectively into economic and political and social citizenship, their availability for insurgent forms of social organization and mobilization increases. And, you know, I think there's a very wide range, to become less abstract about it, there's a very wide range of things that it could mean to be in the streets this summer, right? I mean, uh, you know, it could it ranged from a communist abolitionist politics all the way to a kind of like liberal integrationist, you know, reform the police thing. All, all of that was present in it. And all of that is going to need to be struggled out, you know, over the coming generation. But I think a common denominator across that is the generational denominator that you're referring to emanates from the failure of, you know, existing forms of institutional authority and, you know, economic power to provide avenues for people who they might otherwise might have successfully incorporated into kind of mainstream politics much more provide avenues for those people to allow themselves to be incorporated. So, you know, I know plenty of liberals who I think of as not really sharing my politics, particularly, who were very eager to protest this summer, right? And, you know, might have found themselves saying defund the police or fuck the police, and then trying to think, okay, what do I mean by that, right? And not being sure. And that gives rise to all the different kind of frustrating things like, well, defund the police doesn't really mean defund the police and so on, right? I mean, all, all of that is part of that process because there is a large, to some significant degree, generationally definable group of people who are somewhat available 
for more radical activity to recruit. But, uh, you know, that's a kind of lifelong process um, and is bound to generate kind of contradictory forms of uh, political articulation. You write, quote, the disarticulated elements of a left-wing hegemony appeared in 2020, not together, but rather in sequence. First, the Sanders campaign, and then the spring and summer uprising against the police. Each expressed a fragment of a new historic block. The relative social disconnection between the different parts of this hypothetical block, itself emerging from the disorganization of the American working class, is the reason it appeared in two parts rather than one. It's you make a really sophisticated argument, but I'm not. I don't know that I agree that it checks out against uh, empirically. Was it really two parts, or two rather two different expressions of one part? Because I think, in significant part, of course, by no means in the entirety, it was the Sanders multiracial youth coalition that was in the streets, who was protesting every day in Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is significant overlap in terms of individual participants and what they were, you know, who they voted for in the spring and uh, where they showed up in the summer. The point I'm trying to make there is both the Sanders campaign and to a significant and I think underrated degree, the summer protests have organizational lives behind them, associations of people who know each other and have worked together before, right? And in the case of the Sanders campaign, um, this is DSA to a significant degree, but other kinds of organizations as well, Sunrise, and we could go on down the list. And in the case of the uprising against police violence, you know, I mean, again, there's a whole set of organizations. Some of them date back to Ferguson and, you know, the kind of first wave of Black Lives Matter protests. Some of them are older than that. Some of them are very new. Uh, I was living in, um, in Somerville, Massachusetts until uh, this June. And... Uh, you know, the protests that I went to in Boston were organized by an organization called Black Boston, which I had never heard of. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm white, obviously, and, you know, I've not lived in Boston for very long. But there was this organization, there was this group of people who very evidently knew each other, right, who were the ones who said, this is where a protest is going to happen. This is basically going to be its agenda. We're going to march from here to there. There are speakers. These are the people who are going to speak, whatever. You know, I think we're, we have some significant evidence that formations like that as well as larger ones like BYP 100, uh, you know, Movement for Black Lives and so on, played an important role, a very significant role in the occurrence and development of the uprising, which is not to say that they called everyone who turned out and said, you come be there at this time, right? It's not like it was a extremely regimented and disciplined event, obviously, but rather that there were cores of groups of people who knew each other, had, you know, were experienced in confrontation with the police in many cases, who were at the center and so the point I'm trying to make is that while there is significant overlap between, you know, like myself, I canvassed for Bernie, I went to these demonstrations, there's significant overlap between uh, among participants, but the actual kind of core organizational bases of these two phenomena, I think are not that tightly connected. You know, I think that that bears further interrogation for socialists who would like our movement to embody the struggle against white supremacy. Does does the generational divide also play out across geographic divides, given how economically uneven development drives young people from rural areas into to cities, which become highly unequal economic boom areas, while rural areas 
decline? Yeah, that's a, a good point. I haven't thought much about that. I mean, one thing that has struck me, though, is that, you know, in the summer uprising, um, you know, there were there were demonstrations in lots of, you know, relatively remote places. I'm sure you're right, however, that the growing disconnection between the gener- you know, the kind of generational poles politically has something to do with the social, I mean, the geographical first distance and then the social distance that follows from it between, uh, you know, parents and children or grandparents and grandchildren that's due to the the evaporation of economic opportunity in rural places and to a significant degree also economic successorship in many rural places by immigrants right so you know another another pandemic horror story obviously has been in meat processing plants around rural america and you know there's tons of towns all over the country where people who have moved in uh not just for meat processing although that's a common story but people who have moved in you know, have been immigrants and again, I think there's a real kind of social distance challenge there in terms of the relationship between, uh, you know, a younger and non-white population and working class and a kind of entrenched older incumbent cohort. In the spring, you argued that the pandemic had given the youth, had given young people leverage. Quote, we can transmit the disease and this means our behavior matters and we must mobilize to contain it. As in any mass mobilization, there is a compromise to broker, and now we can see the shape of it. What was the compromise you saw emerging at the time, and did it ever take shape? Was youth leverage ever exercised, or was there no clear demand from youth, nothing on offer from authorities, all while the system just proved remarkably tolerant of mass death, like far more tolerant than I think even most of us on the left would pessimistically have imagined. Yeah. I mean, certainly, um, you know, my hopes for what that might look like have not been borne out. (laughs) Um, I won't begrudge you for your optimism. (laughs) uh, I guess I would say that to the extent that leverage has been, has existed, it has been again, mediated through one, the demonstrations in the summer and two, the kind of after effects of, socialist political organization. So, you know, as we're recording this, uh, you know, Bernie is doing his filibuster for the $2,000 checks, which, you know, have passed the House overwhelmingly. And a majority of senators say they support, although, you know, whether or not they'll actually have a vote for it is unclear. And so the content of that support is, is unclear. But I think that if it were not for the experience of some socialist electoral threat first, and some, you know, real social upheaval and disturbance, second, chronologically, then it seems less likely to me that we would be having a conversation about, you know, there have to be $2,000 checks and this kind of thing. That's not what I hope for, you know? I mean, I'm not going to claim that that's us really winning. Um, But I think it's important to pay attention to, you know, the existing forms of whatever kinds of weak power we've been able to generate and to figure out how to increase them. This all provokes the question of what sort of society we live in. And you write about Wendy Brown's In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, a book, really excellent book that I recently interviewed her about. And you write about Brown's discussion of how neoliberalism denies the existence of society because society is where the realm where relationships of domination are manifested and where they can thus be contested. And so if there's no society then complaints about social 
injustice get caricatured as the whining of SJWs. You write, quote, but Brown's formulation contains a paradox. On what substance does this anti-democratic culture grow, if not a social substance? A new participant must pick up the habits, tendencies of thought and speech from older heads. How can a people so ostensibly atomized share a culture, something which propagates laterally? Aren't a desocialized people too far apart for this to work? Aren't their conditions too sterile? This is a really interesting point. I'm not sure it contradicts Brown's work, but maybe picks up on something that she doesn't quite explicitly resolve. What sort of a society do we live in? And, and how do you see its nastiness as shaped by the neoliberal denial of its existence? Right. I don't think it does contradict Brown's work. She's not a sociologist or a social historian. She's talking about political thought and ideas. So certainly there is an avowed dimension of neoliberalism that she's exploring to deny the reality and to erase the reality of society. Uh, but that can't really be done, right? Um, I do think, though, that I also want to caution against the idea that we live in a unitary society, which I think is a basically kind of liberal idea that, you know, we're kind of bound together in a, a, a garment of fate through, you know, some, you know, cultural or national common, commonality. Rather, I think that capital constitutes us socially in a variety of ways. And then, you know, the forms of social life that we develop persist and leave residues that then, you know, our, our next generation, uh, you know, is reconstituted in the midst of. So uh, this is this is an abstract description. But I, what, what I really mean to say is that I think it's a mistake to accept a kind of neoliberal polemic against society and against the social as an empirical description of the way in which we live. That I think we have a tendency, and many on the socialist left, to describe and think of our society as atomized, that we aren't connected to each other. And uh, you know this gives rise to forms of alienation that then explain our, polit our political problems and so on. And I think this is a mistake. Uh, and that rather what we need to do to understand our political life is to pay attention to the ways in which we are and remain connected to each other and that neoliberalism itself consists in really important ways of social organization, of people coming together in groups to make the world meaningful and to enhance their own power. Is it wrong then to speak of more or less society rather? And should we instead speak of different sorts of societies and forms of sociality? Yeah, I think it makes sense to think in terms of forms of sociality. Uh, I mean, again, in the same way that I don't think we should look for an ideal type of social class and class consciousness, which either is achieved or otherwise is not there or is false. I don't think that there is such a thing as a society, but rather there are social processes and forms of sociality that develop unevenly across the landscape. And they give collective meaning to our shared life. Yeah. And this goes a, a long way to understanding both the state of the left, the state of the right, the state of the center, the state of American politics as a whole. On the right, there are all kinds of social institutions we can think of. I mean, starting with Facebook, <laughs> but also religion, 
as a social institution that has evangelical white Christianity in particular that has survived and in many ways very much thrived amid the neoliberal turn. And the same goes for cops, border patrol agents, prison guards. As you write, quote, the carceral state itself has a massive social base. And revealingly, that social base in Trump's law and order nationalist universe is then converted into an idealized social figure. It's it's not just that cops support Trump, but that Trump supporters idolize cops as the best sort of human. And and the same is true for extractive workers and the right-wing idealization of the minor as the iconic anti-liberal working class. And then the culture of entrepreneurial hustle, which allows strive, the striving everyman to identify with Trump, this purported business genius. We, we hear a lot about identity, but not so much about how political economy shapes society and in doing so forms identities and so can help create the social basis for different forms of politics. And you lay out, and there are all of these different concrete lived experiences that create a real social basis for right-wing politics. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I mean, again, if we want to kind of take it from uh, sort of Marxist first principles in some way, you know, when Marx talks about the possibility of the proletariat as a as a force of social transformation, there's two dimensions to this, right? One is a kind of structural economic dimension, which I tend to think we, uh, if anything, not overemphasize, it's not wrong, but I think we talk more about this today, uh, right? Which is that capital needs labor, right? To valorize itself and to expand and accumulate. Uh, and that, that creates a form of power for labor. Uh, but there's a second, which is equally important and which in some ways is a necessity uh, for the first, which is that capital also brings labor together, right? That the, the development of large scale industry causes workers to congregate with each other in the factory, first of all, and then, you know, beyond it in various ways. And they come to know each other and they come to associate with each other and they come to form organizations. And that is what makes the exercise of leverage possible. Capital organizes labor first, which is the precondition for labor organizing for itself. Yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, I learned this lesson practically as, you know, in, in, in my time as a, as a union organizer, you know, you, I would always hear things from older and more experienced organizers like, oh, well, you're never going to get that person to be involved. They work alone in that office and their boss is there. Right. Or otherwise, like, oh, yeah, that department is really militant. You know, there's a hundred of them there and like one one supervisor. And I was like, why is that? Right. Um, it's not you can't derive that economically. Right. That's about a social dynamic. You know, I think that principle we can extend beyond the kind of industrial scene. Right. To understand all of the ways in which, first of all, I think most significantly right wing politics uh, consists of and subsists off of really existing forms of social organization rather than a kind of like atomistic and alienated landscape. Um, so you raise a couple of important ones already, right? There's uh, right certainly organized religion, which I think I didn't talk enough about in that essay. And there is the social basis of a carceral state. There is a social world of extractive workers. And although coal miners have kind of stood in as a symbol of that, uh, they're actually not really the kind of main body of the rank and file. But uh, as Mike Davis said on your show fairly recently, you know, in Texas, right, where these in these places where Democrats overperform with Latino voters, uh, there is a significant oil and gas underperform. So, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, there's a significant oil and gas boom that has happened there. Right. And that that generates a kind of world of not just workers, but also independent contractors and, you know, uh, servicers of different kinds who, again, are connected to each other. Right. Through 
both economic activity and also, you know, social activity that, that surrounds and undergirds it. Churches, clubs, all kinds of things. And again, here, the Tea Party is, I think, a very uh, important example. Um, you know, liberals, I think, like to say that the Tea Party was an astroturfed phenomenon. Which is, only, which is only half true. Yeah, not just liberals. I mean, it's a, it was a kind of commonly yeah. said thing a decade ago. And it's not that there wasn't billionaire cash flowing into the Tea Party. There was. But there was also a real rank and file, you know, meeting in basements, writing weird pamphlets. Like all of that was really happening for huge numbers of people. And I think is very clearly the immediate precursor to Trump. I mean, the politicians it gave rise to uh, are Trump's most obvious kind of immediate predecessors and their style and, you know, what they were what they were uh, representing. Many of them wound up in his orbit in one way or another. You know, that was really a kind of middle class, like a middle class social club, political social club. So we, we've been talking about how actually existing sociality creates a basis, a social basis for, for right wing politics. It also creates a social basis or creates obstacles to creating a, a big social basis for left wing politics. You write, quote, as Alex Perrine observed last month in the New Republic, Joe Biden's promise of a $15 minimum wage might mean little to a given voter if everyone around thinks Biden is a pedophile and a crook, while Trump is a working class hero. The former's nattering about higher wages will seem duplicitous no matter how many times the campaign slogans are reiterated. But the situation is even more straightforward than this example suggests. If your experience of the world bears no residue of popular power and no residue of that power having brought about any improvements in the quality of your and your neighbor's lives, it is natural that such promises sound fraudulent. Even without the excessive layer of conspiracy theory and hysterical grievance, what politicians say only succeeds if it checks out against social reality as it's lived. The obliteration of institutions that gave the working class some social reality in the past. Trade unions, affordable urban neighborhoods, risk pooled more equally by social insurance, means that there is no one out there to be hailed, at least not at the level of national electoral politics. Eugene Debs could rise from the dead and would get little traction. The working class majority still exists, of course, but only as an economic category, not as a social one. That's fascinating. It's something I was just discussing with, with Stephanie Mudge in a recent interview, how, how neoliberalism has undermined the social and institutional basis for Bernie or in the UK Corbyn's politics to be intelligible to people so that it can correspond in some sense with common sense ideas about how the world works. What can we learn from how the working class was made and then unmade as we see, seek to, to build a social reality within which our politics can resonate widely enough to win. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key thing, the key moment in the formation of the American working class occurs in the early 20th century after a kind of dialectic between the exercise of power on the job by skilled workers who had economic leverage uh, and organize themselves into craft unions that were exclusive of unskilled and often immigrant workers, uh, and particularly women, black people, a dialectic between their trade unionism on the one hand and the kind of more ephemeral and typically radical organizations of 
the unskilled, the immigrants, the black workers, of women, uh, of which the IWW is the kind of classic example. So there's a, uh, there are these two kind of separate forms of organization, which are able to come together after sci scientific management and the assembly line flatten the aristocracy of labor, the skilled workers and their, their trade unions between the 1890s and the 1920s. The completion, basically, of that process, the destruction of the aristocracy of labor creates a commonality of condition in the form of the so-called semi-skilled operative who becomes- and that, and that divide had been had been racialized as well. Yes. The divide was deeply racialized, ethnicized. I mean, it, it took many different forms, but race was quite central to it. But uh, the, the development of, you know, Fordist mass production basically elevates the semi-skilled operative- which is to say, if you think of someone working on an auto assembly line, that's you're, you're thinking of a, a semi-skilled operative as the kind of main rank of the working class. The way the teacher becomes the main rank of the public school, in a sense. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and there are there are people, you know, there is this, there's still skilled elites among the workforce. I mean, relative elites, you know, among the workforce in an auto plant, for example. And often they, in fact, played key leadership roles. Uh, you know, Walter Ruther was himself a skilled craftsman, but they're, they're smaller in number and they're no longer able to, uh, you know, dominate the production process and dictate the terms of organization. And also there are uh, so-called unskilled workers, you know, beneath the semi-skilled operatives, like, you know, people who have to sweep up the yard and things like this. Again, that's a division that's highly likely to be racialized, but nonetheless, there's a homogenization process that's involved in the production of a working class that is able to organize itself and kind of contest for power on a scale not seen before or since in the 1930s and 40s. You know, I like to think of this as like, you can think of whole neighborhoods, like the South on the South side of Chicago or on the Lower East Side of New York, whole neighborhoods that are kind of marching in sync to the factory whistle. You know, everyone sort of does the same thing for a living. And, you know, it's very easy for people to therefore relate to each other and be connected to each other. So it's the obliteration of those institutions that creates the kind of absence of a working class in American society and politics, right? It's not that there isn't a majority of people out there who, you know, depend on wage income to survive. There still is. And that's why I think it's still possible to continue to think and think of politics and analyze politics in these terms and to hope for something more. But the social reality of that working class is gone. Almost, not completely, but almost completely. And, you know, I think what we then have to do is to try to identify new points around which we might compose ourselves, right? And that's not the same thing as saying, if we make the right demands, the working class will awaken, which I think is not true. I think, I mean, the Bernie campaigns were a test of that, right? Um, and Corbyn. And Corbyn. Like right? in the UK, like the politics Corbyn was espousing was the politics in so many ways of the labor heartlands that they fought to protect against Thatcher's onslaught. And it's where precisely where he failed most dramatically. Right. Because it sounds like bullshit, right? If you're if you have lived through the betrayal of solidarity, the disintegration of institutions created by solidarity, or if you haven't even lived through it, you just live in its aftermath, there is no reason to think it would work. Solidarity is always a risk, right? There's always a competing logic by which it makes more sense to, uh, you know, look out for your own in some way. And 
solidarity always, I mean, it's not, we don't have to think of it in terms of a kind of mathematical interest, but solidarity always requires a kind of balancing of the risk of what do I, you know, what do I give up if I don't just look out for my own against what, what might I be able to do together with others? That logic appears in our minds, again, not as a mathematical calculation necessarily, but as an evaluation of, you know, well, what have I seen work before? Right? What, what do I think the people around me are likely to do? It's the reason, again, that you can't argue someone into joining a union based on their acknowledgement of the logic of what you're... I mean, I tried this a million times as a baby organizer <laughs> when I didn't know what I was doing. I was saying, you know, you agree with everything I'd say. Why would you sign the card? And it doesn't matter if they agree. <laughs> uh, what matters is, are the other people around them doing it, right? Because that's what's going to make the logic credible. And that obviously creates chicken and egg problems that the whole job of organizers is trying to solve. Yeah, well, that's why what I, you write, quote, such orientations are not amenable to rhetoric or argument alone, as none of our orientations are. They make sense in the same way ideology always makes sense, as an expression of the relationships that define a person's sense of the world's existing and possible shapes. Such a belief changes only when the world around its bearer changes. Fighting for someone you don't know is a beautiful idea. Fighting for someone you do know is how you win. But that that is like a core chicken in the egg problem because how do we change conditions in order to change minds if we have people with ideologies and, and minds that are so bound to the, the status quo? But this is what historical materialism was invented for, Dan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, right? Because what it tell, what we do is we say, okay, we have to therefore identify the point, existing points of contradiction and rupture in how things work now and the forms of solidarity that already exist, potentially in some relation to those contradictions and points of rupture, although potentially not. Right? We can't create from nothing the kinds of solidarity that we wished were there, but rather we have to build them out from connections that we already have to each other. You know, I, I don't mean to say that I think the Corbyn or Sanders campaigns were a mistake. And I think, you know, there are real cases that make them worth it, that, you know, in which people, millions of people recognize something in their world that, you know, Bernie is describing and it reorients them in the world and causes them to relate to people around them differently. And that was always, I think, the theory of the campaign at its best. And it's simply that there were not enough people like that. There, there were not enough opportunities for the meaning that the campaign generated to resonate in that way for it to actually win. But that doesn't mean that it didn't resonate. It doesn't mean that it didn't accomplish anything. Uh, so I think what we have to do is identify the places where it did resonate, understand why, and similarly, not just the Bernie campaign, but other forms of militant organization that have come in and solidarity that have come into being and understand where they resonated and why, and then say, okay, that's where we're starting. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much understandable ha hand wringing over Latino voters moving right, but in Arizona, it was the Latino and left long mobilization against right wing anti immigrant government in that state, particularly but not exclusively Joe Arpaio and Governor Jan Brewer signing SB 1070 in 2010 that delivered Arizona to Democrats in the general election, and then in the primary, and this has really not been incorporated into the what's going on with the Latino vote story anywhere near sufficiently in the primary Bernie won Nevada and California, the biggest state in the country, thanks to Latino voters. And so 
the story of the the 2020 vote is not simply one of Latinos moving right. And it's not at all that that race and identity don't matter, but that identities as they're popularly understood are, are grounded in these concrete material and social realities. And Bernie tapped into those in certain ways by, by talking, speaking to Latino immigrant workers and Trump tapped into them in other ways, more perhaps more unexpected ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the unexpected point is certainly true. And it's why it's kind of uh, gotten the airtime it's gotten, I, I imagine. But, I, you know, I do think that for all that the California victory is in some ways the most impressive, I do think that the most instructive incident in line with what you're saying is the Nevada one. Because, I mean, I'm sure your listeners all remember this, but the Culinary Union, which represents 60,000 workers in, in Nevada casinos, uh, very obviously wanted Biden to win. And signaled this to its members in a variety of ways without actually endorsing him because they were worried he wouldn't win and they have a really good reputation for picking winners and they don't want to ruin that. But they were trying to engineer a situation in which they're increasingly nasty attacks leading up to the caucus. Right. They were trying to engineer a situation in which their members got the message that they, you know, the members who are very sort of disciplined foot soldiers of that union in electoral politics. And are the reason that Nevada has become a democratic state, basically, at all levels. You know, all of its, I think almost all, maybe all of its congressional delegation, both houses of the, of the state legislature, the governor, and so on, right, has to do with the organization of those workers, that huge union, the participation of workers in its political program. So, you know, there's reason, the, the leadership had reason to think that they could get this message across to the membership. Instead, what happened was the membership caucused overwhelmingly for Bernie. And the whole issue is healthcare. Uh, in both cases, both the leadership message and the membership's behavior, the leadership is saying we have to protect our plan, our really good healthcare plan from Medicare for all. And the membership basically saying collectively, oh, no, you know, we think like our family and friends and neighbors should also have good healthcare. And, you know, I think the way to understand that episode is that those 60,000 workers have had this really profound experience of solidarity in their union. And, you know, all credit to the culinary for that, right? That they have, they feel really empowered through this collective social organization that they're part of. And that empowerment has created an ideology and a logic of solidarity for the members that they then see no reason to apply the limits on that the leadership would like them to. And I think there's a quite profound lesson in that, right? In terms of how to look for and identify the existing points, right, to solve the chicken and egg problem that we were talking about. The the election did, though, reveal major problems for Democrats' presumption that voters of color and immigrants are their inevitable base, and that the Bernie campaign, at least with the Latino vote in Nevada and California, did not make that presumption. But is one factor at play here that the identity categories that many liberals and leftists prized don't resonate as widely in actually existing social worlds as many had hoped. Not that identity doesn't matter, of course, but that the certain abstract identity categories just don't resonate on the ground in ways that it's convention. it was, at least prior to the election, conventional wisdom that they did. Yeah. I mean, I think I would put it like this. I think that uh, in particular, we're talking about race, basically. And I think that- Like people being interpolated as Latino and being like, yeah, that's something that I share with all other Latinos. Right. And I think that that doesn't mean in the way that the Democratic Party thinks that it bears meaning. So it's not that, I mean, you know, this is, uh, other people are more expert on, you know, the Latino vote than me. 
But, you know, from what I understand, it's not necessarily that, you know, a Cuban in Miami or even like, a, let's say, a you know, a middle class, you know, independent contractor to an oil company in Texas who is Mexican-American would say, I'm not Latino. Right. If you ask them, are you <laughs> right? But rather that it doesn't bear the political meaning that, you know, Joe Biden famously said, you know, if you I mean, about black people, if you, if you, you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Or, you know, what, remember when he came up to the podium? I forget what the event was and played on his phone. Despacito, was it? Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it was right, like nothing empty room. It was very. Yeah. Nothing other weird. than just an invo- a sort of empty invocation of an assumed meaning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, moreover, so, I mean, first of all, there's, there's a diversity of meanings associated, again, as we should expect, right? I mean, identity, like any, like, like class, like anything is contradictory and develops historically in relation to, uh, you know, larger social forces. And so is bound not to mean one thing, uh, right? Even in the case of African-Americans who do behave politically in a more unitary way than, uh, you know, any group in the country, basically. And moreover, the Democrats, you know, I think the leadership itself no longer exactly understands, or at least no longer behaves as though it understands, the sources of the loyalty that it takes for granted, and no longer is invested in reproducing the sources of that loyalty, and instead is just doing the taking for granted. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, for example, the, the uh, there's a pretty significant generational, you know, gap that has emerged in Black politics as the mechanisms that bind black voters to the democratic party, which, you know, to some degree go back to the new deal, uh, which is when black voters started, um, African-Americans started voting for Democrats by majorities in 1936. And obviously more significantly and recently go back to the sixties and the civil rights movement. And both of those phases have kind of institutional legacies in terms of, again, trade unionism, civil rights organizations, embedded in churches in various ways and social, you know, and fraternal groups in various ways, and even in sort of family networks. All of that, you know, is increasingly bounded within older generations of black voters. And, you know, it's sort of like spend the Democrats are sort of spending down the legacy that they inherited from those earlier moments and then trying to quash the social movement efforts that would, you know, renew that legacy on a kind of new and more vital basis, uh, because doing so would also threaten the control of the democratic machine and its black arm. Uh, so, you know, a great example here is the rallying of the Congressional Black Caucus around Elliot Engel, a white congressman representing, uh, you know, the Bronx and Westchester County, when he was challenged by Jamal Bowman. You know, I mean, lots of the Congressional Black Caucus came out of not necessarily the radical left, but, you know, the kind of the squad of their day, you might say, in the 60s and 70s. The sort of black political power that was being forged after the National Black Political Convention in, in Gary as, you know, black mayors took power for the first time from Atlanta to Detroit to Philadelphia. Exactly. Kian Yamada Taylor is, is, is writing a book about this now. You know, the in some cases, it's those same figures, although typically there's been kind of at least one generation of turnover in, in the institutionalized power that resulted from that moment and sometimes more than one generation of turnover. But the power that was produced through that kind of organization and activity in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, right, is now a kind of like ossified arm of the Democratic Party machine, right, such that it can try to deploy itself to, in some cases, succeed to 
defend the party rather than, you know, even something as simply defined as like black politicians, right? Um, I mean, the Engel-Bowman case being a very good example. So what that means is that there is a kind of small C conservative, although sort of big C conservative too, in some ways, defense of this older network that both secures rank and file black loyalty for the party and also fails to engender new sources of it. And I think is basically the reason we should understand Trump being able to make, you know, small but observable inroads uh, among black voters, particularly black men. And even as black general election turnout, that those inroads were made even as turnout declined and black turnout declined in many cases. And so Biden relied on black voter could rely on black voters to beat Bernie. But that in turn obscures the fact that they that establishment Democrats are still undermining the long term conditions for their right. black base. And, uh, you know, they're doing it exactly because it's how they can beat Bernie for now. It seems that sometimes these identity categories as abstractions are most coherent and concrete for liberal elites whose signs affirming that Black Lives Matter or noting all of the things that are believed in a given house are above all all else, I think, a signal to their neighbors because perhaps the only people of color in certain neighborhoods who will see these signs are making the occupants of these houses, making their pandemic realities more comfortable by delivering Amazon packages or landscaping their 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 lawn. What why is it that what is it about liberal elite sociality that makes holding and making it clear that one holds open-minded, tolerant, forward-thinking opinions so prized even as those purported values are so abstracted from the materiality of lived oppression and domination? Does does this relate to arguments that you reference in one of your essays? made by Nancy Fraser and Adolf Reed about how certain forms of identity politics operate in the interest of the PMC, the professional managerial class in general, and PMC women and black people in particular who who within that framework can operate as unelected spokespeople for broader collectivities? Yeah. I mean, I certainly think there's truth in that, which has to do with the articulation of the logic of professional life and career, which is meritocratic, right? Um, the articulation of that logic to, or purportedly meritocratic, its articulation to the triumph after the civil rights movement of, you know, integrationist politics. You know, the emergence, this is what Reed and Fraser uh, are talking about, the emergence thereby of economic elites, you know, among these previously subordinated categories by race and gender, who then, uh, you know, argue for a kind of priority of forms of identity as opposed to, you know, economic, uh, as opposed to class. The emergence of elites that, you know, kind of carry that message and have been, as you say, taken as spokespeople um, by, you know, white people or by men, depending on the case. That's what's allowed, the theory is that that's what's allowed the kind of more or less inadvertent or not, depending on who you ask, alliance between forms of feminism or, you know, black identity politics on the one hand and sort of the neoliberal democratic machine on the other. I think that there is a lot of truth in that analysis. I, I also, part of the point of the essay is that I don't think that that 
fully explains the things about either professional ideology or its place in the Democratic Party that we want to understand. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month, plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. Even as the Democratic Party establishment seeks to form a constituency combining affluent liberals on the one hand and working class people of color with nowhere else to go. You write, quote, all this does not mean that Republicans have become or will become the party of the working class. Indeed, you say there's no such party in this country right now, which seems right to me. Is the reason that Repu- is there a reason that Republicans can't become a party of the working class that have to do with how the, that party is embedded in, in American capitalism that makes it impossible or at least very difficult for Hawley or, or Bannon's vision for a sort of right-wing working class economic populism to actually take over the party? Because, you know, at the end of the day, as Trump's recent stimulus check debacle reveals, the Republican Party still, you know, beyond beyond rhetoric typically serves business and the rich. Yeah. I mean, I think it's even simpler than that in a certain way, uh, which is that once you accept that the class structure of the United States is profoundly racialized, right? Always has been in some form, although the forms that it takes changes, then you cannot see a path by which the party of white supremacy can become the party of the working class, right? The party of white supremacy certainly can incorporate elements, significant elements of the working class. And, you know, in fact, in modern history, this is not an unusual thing, right? For elite parties to have significant working class participation happens around the world all the time when, you know, working class parties are not powerful uh, or don't exist. But there's simply no way that a party that you know, for all that it's gone from 5% of the black vote to 10% of the black vote, a party that gets 10% of the black vote 
can become the collective organ of working class politics. It's just, it's the composition of it is too completely other. Now, that's not to say that the Democrats are that either, right? Um, and I think, you know, again, if we move away from a kind of ideal types of analysis in which one party has to represent one class and one party has to represent the other, and, you know, accept that they are historically fluctuating and uneven formations with kind of composite social composition, then, you know, it's not that hard to say, okay, well, you know, we're in the unfortunate situation where like both parties belong to different fragments of the elite, uh, you know, with different kind of uh, plebeian coalitions bulking them out in different ways. But, you know, when Hawley or Bannon or someone like that, I mean, I, you know, I, I certainly, I think there's good grounds for worrying that they can make further inroads into the kind of remnant social democratic formation, you know, barely clinging to life inside the Democratic Party, right? That they can increase from getting about 50% of union membership in a lot of places to getting 60% or whatever, right? Um, that they can increase from getting 10% of the black vote to 15% in this way. There's, there's certainly good grounds for worry that the success of that populist tendency on the right will increase the marginal strength of the Republicans. I think it would if it went out in in their party, but that would not produce a whole repolarization of the party system on class lines, simply because the articulation of both parties to the racial order is way too uh, deep for that. This is this brings us to what sort of ideology and politics Trumpism represents, specifically the always fun to debate question of whether Trump is a fascist or Trumpism is fascist. And I, I find myself very back and forth on this and had some of my least fun days on Twitter ever when I was on the more feeling more on the critic, the no, he's definitely not fascist side of the debate. Because on the one hand, you write, quote, calling Trump a fascist is useful since it compels the left to fall in for a coerced popular front behind the Democratic Party. And now, with Biden on the path to installing a restorationist government, the alliance is suspended and the left can be hounded and marginalized safely. And I still think there's a lot of a lot of truth to that. And that argument is put forward by in the New Left Review a few years back by Dylan Riley. And I interviewed him in part about that a while back. But but then you point out that there's a tradition in black radical scholarship that argues that, quote, this country and the rest of the Atlantic world have been home to a much older and more intellectually and politically committed analysis of racial fascism. What are the various ways that fascism is defined? And what are the stakes of how we define it and of the stakes of determining whether or not Trumpism is indeed fascist or maybe to split the difference has fascist characteristics. Sure. Well, I think, you know, part of the challenge here has been, you know, I think, frankly, opportunistic way in which uh, some number of, let's say, hashtag resistance type forces have wanted to call Trump a fascist, you know, as a way of kind of exaggerating his immediate potential for, you know, becoming a dictator and thereby shutting down, uh, as in that quote you were reading, shutting down critics on their own left, uh, which has always struck me as strange, because if you believe that he's a fascist, that he himself is a fascist in a kind of clear way, and that this is an incipient fascist regime, 
it doesn't seem to me like then the thing you want to do is you know run a moderate for office. It'd be like if if, if you think you're living in the fascist regime. You you know you you got to make guns in the basement or whatever, <laughs> um, but uh, that, yeah 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 and, and because if we were always fascist as you know some of the black radical con- tradition contend that's not at all what the liberal resistance is trying to convey with the term because that in turn would require them examining their own deep historic complicity in Trumpism right but um, you know I think that. A lot of, you know, theorizing and thinking about fascism going back all the way, you know, almost a century now has understood it as not external to liberalism, but something that emerges out of the body of liberal society. I think that's a much more useful way of thinking about it. And I think, uh, you know, the kind of black radical tradition helps us think that through much more clearly. Uh, So this is outlined helpfully by Alberto Toscano in Boston Review couple months ago. But, you know, he really is just kind of working through a variety of black writers and thinkers on this subject who, you know, identified, I mean, first, you know, apartheid, uh, also, you know, the rise of the carceral state, even Jim Crow, kind of earlier than that, uh, identified it as, uh, identified white supremacy as instantiated in settler societies around the, around the Atlantic world as having a commonality with fascism. And, you know, being usefully named as that. And so what I do in the, in the essay is to try to work through that idea in, in comparison against Dylan Riley's essay in New Left Review, which I take to be the kind of best argument against seeing fascism in Trumpism. So maybe I'll just summarize those both. So Riley is a great sociologist of European fascism. He wrote an excellent book called The Civic Foundations of Fascism in Europe. I really admire it a lot. And what he says is, uh, based on that book, which is a comparison of Spain, Italy, and Romania, he says basically the ingredient for fascism has, uh, is, is, has two parts. One is a robust civil society. That fascism grows out of really widespread participation in civic activity and organization when it occurs in combination with a failure of political hegemony. So if the political system is unable to accommodate and incorporate the popular energies that arise out of civil society, uh, and instead has a kind of hegemonic break in which the parties no longer represent their constituencies. Which is a sort of Gramscian analysis that there's a organic crisis, this disjuncture between representative and represented. Exactly. Uh, That's how how fascism arises. Uh, And I find that argument with regard to the three countries in Europe he analyzes very convincing. Uh, He turns to the U.S. and says, this isn't happening in the U.S. because American society is too atomized and too too alienated. And Trump is the only principle of unity for the formation that he leads and represents, that it's an identification with him as opposed to with each other. The unity of Trump supporters consists in the image of Trump, just as the unity of those queuing consists in the bus for which they wait. Uh, Exactly. So... And so, therefore, he says, uh, you know, Trump should be understood as a patrimonial, you know, a patrimonial type leader, which is a, a typology from Weber. Uh, but, you know, basically, he's tried to install like his family at the head of the state. And this is this is what generates the contradictions that kind of, you know, animate the news cycle day to day and all the insane stories about Trump. Right. Because uh, it's just the that logic of rule is grinding against the kind of bureaucratic rationality of the existing state. Although this incidentally too, you know, I mean, this is something liberals also say constantly, right? Trump is a mob boss. 
Um, yeah. yeah, who rewards loyalty. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think it, I think the patrimonial argument about the guy himself makes perfectly good sense. And I found it very useful. However, where I think Riley is wrong is his understanding of Trump as the sole logic of unity among his constituency, right? That his own image is the only thing that binds them together. And they are, because they are otherwise atomized, you know, kind of, Riley kind of draws an image of like a stultified, slack jawed, staring at Fox News type audience, right? Being jolted by tweets every 20 minutes or whatever. And I think you can only really get away with that you can only hold to that vision of the Trump rank and file with a completely deracialized analysis. Yet drawing on Aziz Rana, you argue, quote, Tocqueville's utopia was egalitarian not in spite of those whom it left out, but because of those whom it subordinated. The freedom and equality of the settlers were the enslavement and conquest of their victims. The primary factor of social cohesion in Tocqueville's America was nothing other than white supremacy. Given that this structure has endured, not unaltered, but unmistakably intact, it makes little sense to imagine our society as formerly rich with association, but now bereft of it. The gun-waving McCloskeys in St. Louis are presumably not members of the same kind of fraternal organizations that were popular in the 19th century, but they are members of a homeowner's association. Whiteness itself is a kind of incohate associational gel out of which a variety of more specific associations may grow in a given historical conjuncture. So Tocqueville is very important for Riley, which is why I you know, spent some time on Tocqueville, because he wants to make the point about fascism that it arises out of what we think of as a kind of the classic democratic civic behavior, right? That described by Tocqueville uh, and its equivalent in Europe. And that's true, right? And I think I appreciate his intervention when he calls fascism democratic authoritarianism to distinguish it from other kinds of authoritarianism. I think that's uh, there's a powerful insight in that. But I think it, we have to face the huge array of forms of like basically white settler sociality that still exist in this country that bind white conservatives, white Trump supporters to each other, increasingly also not white Trump supporters that bind them to each other, right? So that, uh, and we went through a lot of these earlier in the show, but, you know, in through policing in different ways, through, and you know, the carceral state more broadly, you know, through other kinds of employment, through patterns of residential uh, occupation and ownership, uh, through religious practice. And also, you know, and this was actually what got me thinking about this, although it's terrain on which I'm least comfortable, online. I mean, the role of social media in the Trump phenomenon seems very hard to dispute at this point. And, you know, I mean, I think what's distinctive about it from Fox News is that it's social in some way. I don't mean to say that it's as rich an environment for social interaction as, you know, meeting in a church basement with your fellow Klansmen or whatever. But <laughs> um, it is interactive in some way, right? People, and, and like if we think of something like QAnon, it does en enlist its participants as sleuths in a certain way, makes them feel involved and connected to each other, as their slogan says, where we go where one. Where we go one, we go all. Yeah. Um, and so we should, you know, listen to that, actually, right? They're telling us that they're associated with each other. And they're emphasizing their, the associational quality of it constantly. Yeah. 
And I think it's difficult to look at all of that, all of these levels of sociality, which are intensely racialized, right? Even if they are capable of including non-white people, they emerge out of, you know, forms of white racial ideology. And to conclude that the relationship between Trump and his base is one way and vertical only. And so once we've then accepted that there is a kind of lateral propagation, right? These people are related to each other, associate with each other, as well as uh, being connected to Trump in some way. Then what we're looking at is very similar to what's being described by George Padmore or Angela Davis or Paul Robeson or any number of black radicals uh, when they talk about racial fascism, right? Which is precisely a form of racial authoritarian rule which enlists a white rank-and-file democratic participation. I certainly agree that whiteness is a powerful form of sociality at play here. But, uh, and I'm thinking here of Joe Lowndes and Daniel Martinez-Hosang's work, which I interviewed them about, I think, sometime last year, about how it's a form of white supremacy that's remarkably dynamic and has more room for people of color than conventional anti-racist analyses would allow for. Why is that? Is it whiteness's materiality, the way it is, has been suffused throughout capitalism and the carceral state? Is that what gives today's right-wing politics, really white right-wing politics at some of its most racist, weirdly this, this strange capacity for multiracial inclusion? Well, I think, you know, if we say, okay, we, we accept that, um, you know, whiteness operates through socially specific historical forms, right? That it's not a transcendent principle, uh, you know, beginning in 1619 and continuing to the present or something like that, and, but that it operates in and constitutes specific social forms which are amenable to challenge, have been challenged, have changed in response to challenge. We can then follow that insight to say that those social forms are not identical with whiteness, right? So home ownership, for example, and even organized homeownership, i.e. homeowners associations, right? It's easy to say, and true to say, that they re-embody a form of white supremacy, that they institutionalize it through multiple means, right? Through school systems, uh, through wealth accumulation, you know, that they, they constitute social bases for people to relate to each other, not just through their HOA, but also through maybe the neighborhood church, the park, whatever. But it might also be that, you know, a black person lives in that neighborhood, right? Uh, I mean, it's not 1944 or anything. That's a weird year to year choose, but you know what I'm saying? It's not high Jim Crow anymore. Um, and it could easily be the case that a black person lives in the McCloskey's neighborhood. I don't know. But if they did, you could then imagine that they might be a member of the HOA, right? And that they might also, it might matter to them that they try to keep the value of their property as high as they can and that they, you know, begin to worry about crime you know, the way that people around them are. And if we don't take race or any kind of identity to be a fixed abstract category, right, but to be a socially embodied and dynamic process that is contestable, we can also then understand how the very terms of white supremacy or of the racial order more generally, they necessarily have room for you know, exceptions to some degree. Um, and they may even make hay of those exceptions, right? I mean, Trump, like, loves to find black people who praise him. That doesn't mean that he's not a white supremacist political figure. 
And moreover, that those people who are praising him are not participating in white supremacy, although they are themselves black, right? And we don't really have trouble with this idea, like in the form of a black cop, for example, right? We all kind of understand now that black cops are capable of executing the process of police racism. And I think we can just sort of generalize that idea a little bit. And we can probably understand it in the case of Diamond and Silk. Yes, right. (laughs) This brings us to, to the question of the general balance of forces and the nature of the current moment. You you take Gramsci's concept of an organic crisis, which you discussed a little bit earlier, this moment where the ruling system no longer functions vis-a-vis reality, where there's this rupture between represented and representative. But then you then note that Stuart Hall, quote, distinguishes between the conjunctural and the organic, observing that a crisis only passes from the merely conjunctural to the organic when the efforts described by Gramsci cease to be restorationist and take on an inventive character, aiming to establish a new hegemony on the basis of a new social block. Neither Trump nor Biden nor, of course, sadly, Sanders, has succeeded in establishing a new hegemony on the basis of a new social block. So who and what is in contention? Why in Hall's formulation, would this be a conjunctural rather than organic crisis? And and what's the general state of play? Right. Well, it would be a conjunctural rather than organic crisis if there doesn't exist any potential force that can uh, resolve it, right? That, that it's not possible to break through the political impasse and establish a new hegemony. And I think different people out there think that there that force does not exist for various reasons. Um, you know, I think further to the left in Endnotes, for example, I think you'll find an argument that uh, it's that there's the economic basis of hegemony that, which is a some kind of cross-class coalition, is no longer there because of the stag- long-term stagnation of of profitability in capitalism, and so hegemony actually can't really be won by anyone anymore. That's a bummer. Yeah, uh, right. And so that, that's that's the reason that that uh, you know a, a formation like Endnotes would characterize itself as communist rather than socialist, uh, because that the socialist idea of you know winning hegemony through the kind of means immediately at our disposal and then trying to proceed from there is implausible to them. And that's an argument I think really worth taking seriously. You know, someone like Riley, on the other hand, I think doesn't think that hegemony. Anyone can really bid for hegemony at the moment because he just doesn't think that civil society is well-developed enough. In other words, there's not enough organization on any side to uh, win power and you know, implement it for political reasons, as opposed to the kind of underlying economic reason that EndNotes would say. You know, I, I try to actually kind of keep myself a little bit agnostic on these questions, which seem to me not really totally answerable at this point. But uh, I did, you know, I felt uh, obligation... I feel an ongoing obligation in line with what we were talking about before to try to identify the points around which new forms of possibility and danger might be cohering. So, you know, first on the right, uh, I think it's true to say that, you know, certainly Trump did not achieve anything like hegemony. I think, you know, there is a risk. Well, first of all, you know, had COVID-19 not occurred, would he have been able to run on the, you know, lift of the whole economy driven by the kind of expansion of the financial markets uh, and the low rates of unemployment that followed, would he have been able to kind of run on that right-wing Keynesian program, basically? 
and you know win kind of resoundingly. I'm not sure that the answer to that is no. I mean, I think he, that might have that might have worked. And even if that, even setting aside that hypothetical, you know, I think that the risk that we should pay attention to going forward is certainly the one that you flagged earlier about a kind of Josh Hawley type right wing populism, which again, I don't think we're likely to see establish itself as a party of the working class. But I do think one could imagine a right wing authoritarian populist formation led by a figure like Hawley, you know, pursuing a a uh, you know, kind of what, what Riley calls a neo-mercantilist kind of economic agenda, paying some dividends for its rank and file and, you know, entrenching itself in some real popularity that way, you know, helped out as the Republicans always are by the uh, institutional structure and geography of the country. But Mitch McConnell standing there at the Senate today, earlier today, before we spoke, blocking a Senate vote on $2,000 stimulus checks shows that there are a variety of obstacles yes. to, to that politics. Right. I think there are certainly obstacles to it. Uh, I don't think that we are in it now. You know, I don't think we should take Trump as the sign of its ascent. I think we should take Trump as the sign of its danger. On the left, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, I'm sorry for even saying them after saying on the left, but to consider the Democrats, um, I think the Democrats have communicated very clearly that they are not interested in doing anything other than restoration, right? That if the, if the, if the Gramsci and Hall formula is that to, a, a crisis becomes organic and amenable to resolution when there are forces that are inventive rather than conservative and are able to push, push through to the other side and establish a new hegemony. The Democrats are saying every time, you know, I mean, the Democratic leadership and mainstream are saying every time they open their mouths, that's not what we're trying to do, right? Um, I think this is, you see this in a variety of ways and you know, the personnel of the new administration, you know, I mean, Biden's constant discussion of like his desire to just get along with the Republicans. But I think most clearly you see it in the effort to blame the left for electoral disappointment and in particular to blame the summer uprising for it. Which is remarkable given that we obviously would have been blamed if Bernie was the nominee and presided over a fuck up of this magnitude. But it's so remarkable that it's happening when we lost the primary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> and, it's like, oh, we just get blamed for everything. Yeah, of because course. it's politically useful for them. Yeah. And I think gotcha. I think the, you know, the risk of a right wing authoritarian populist hegemony orbits around the figure of of the police and of the carceral state fundamentally for reasons that we kind of talked some about earlier. Uh, and the Democrats' insistence that they have no interest in challenging the carceral state, no interest in being associated with anti-policing ideology, that in fact, any Democrats who have flirted with that at all are the reason that the party has suffered. But it is a statement that we're not trying to change the terms of the polit- of political conflict. Right, that is, we're not contesting for hegemony. We're not contesting They're for not. hegemony. Right. Right. Speaking in the voice of like Nancy Pelosi and Abigail Spanberger and Chuck Schumer. And, you know, they actually, it is in a variety of ways to their, I mean, it's like no one can get hegemony and they, that with them staying in power. Right. That's, there's no force that if it achieves hegemony will leave Pelosi and Schumer's leadership in, and Biden's for that matter and Harris intact. So they are fundamentally politically invested in the organic crisis. 
and need it to continue, regardless of however they articulate it to themselves, right? And that, that, that becomes articulated in the form of the attempt to play different factions of the party off against each other. You know, I mean, the possibility of a kind of left hegemony, you know, is certainly speculative. I mean, I don't, mean, I, I don't know that this will come about, but I, it seems to me that the generational dynamic that we've been talking about has, you know, proceeded quite far in terms of like gelling in the consciousness and ideology of a younger generation and increasingly taking organizational form as a kind of oppositional ideology, actually, and that that is common across the racial divide, basically, between a white socialist, a largely white socialism and a largely black led anti-policing movement. And so, you know, I, I do think that if we can figure out that gap, that associational organizational gap between these two elements and actually, you know, articulate them to each other more tightly, then what we have is not a majority, right? It's not that everyone who is, you know, if you add up everyone who's part of one or the other or both of those, you get to 50% plus one. What you have rather is a social block that I think would be able to lead struggles uh, and articulate solutions to the crises of our society that would be capable of, of, of more general leadership, which is to say hegemony. No, another way you phrase this is that a powerful left's quote, social basis lies in an alliance of low wage workers and high debt workers, disproportionately young, who are concentrated together in cities and increasingly in suburbs. Is another way to phrase this that it's a social block that would be a multiracial youth alliance of portions of the working class and professional managerial class? Yeah. And increasingly not even so young. I mean, you know, we've been talking about generation all the yeah, time. Yeah, we're not young anymore. I'm, I'm 34. <laughs> we, you're like 38 or I'm something. 30, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I've gotten to the age where I'm only young if I'm like running for president of the United States. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think you could imagine that formation exercising political leadership within the Democratic Party, um, you know, as we've come close to doing sort of in moments, right, without, without getting that close, but it's not like it's a crazy idea. And via the means of the Democratic Party, the capture of the Democratic Party uh, and, you know, the overcoming of internal enemies within it, making the message of, you know, an anti-racist socialist program intelligible to a much wider range of people, assuming it were accompanied by a continuation and intensification of the kinds of social movement activity that those two constituencies have been engaged in. Late last year, you critiqued fellow Sanders supporters on the left for demonizing Warrenites as the PMC, when in fact, so was a big chunk of the Sanders base. Right now we have a podcaster interviewing a professor, for example. But was it still a fair critique in some way of a certain PMC ideology embodied by Warren, who, after all, did ultimately really help fatally undermine Bernie? And, and what did it reveal that Bernie was able to combine his PMC support with a substantial amount of working class support, while Warren really failed to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think here, you know, a, a question that, again, I've asked many times as an organizer is one we have to ask ourselves, which is, do you want to be right or do you want to win? <laughs> uh, and it certainly, you know, feels good to go after one's opponents, particularly one's most proximate opponents, which is to say rivals, right, for their failure to see the same possibilities of solidarity that you see and 
you know, that is an indulgence that I have indulged in. It's a, a, a cup I have drunk from many times. Um, but uh, I think that the real question and the one I was trying to raise in that essay, at least as it was with regards to the presidential primaries, was how can Bernie hegemonize Warren's people, right? I mean, uh, the thing- Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like be nice to them because it's nice to be nice. Right. Um, <laughs> it was that, you know, for the project to succeed, it had to grow to include them, which meant that it had to have a place for them, right? It had to seem like something that they would want to be part of. And that, you know, has to do in some ways with questions of like, you know, online tone or whatever. Although obviously all that stuff gets incredibly cynically used by opponents of the, of, of the left all the time. But more significantly and more substantively, it has to do with our analysis of social class, what it is, how it operates in American politics and Democratic Party politics, where the socialist left comes from in terms of social class and what its limits are. And it seemed to me that many of you know our comrades were engaged in some amount of self-delusion or sleight of hand about the social origins of Bernie's activist base and that that was going to kill us over the long term if we, don't, if we didn't actually figure it out. You argue that an obstacle for the left PMC is its denial of the PMC's clear role in the left. Why? Why? Okay. So this goes back to uh, Barbara and John Ehrenreich, who created the concept of the professional managerial class. They were drawing on older uh, traditions, you know, some some kind of around the Trotskyist tradition and criticisms of the Soviet Union. Um, and this is in the late 70s in an important journal from that era, yes, Radical America. Radical, the great Radical America. Uh, and they were trying to make sense of the defeat of the new left, of which they had both been a part. Uh, John didn't really have a famous career on the left after that, you know, after after his relationship with Barbara. She obviously went on to great, great things. Uh, he did great things, too, just became a less significant left-wing intellectual. But uh, they were trying to make sense of the defeat of the new left. And, you know, there had been this moment at the end of the 1960s when students for democratic society had splintered into different factions. And the content of that conflict was all about the class analysis of the student, the white new left, right? Who are we? Where do we come from? Why has this movement occurred? And where might it go based on that? And there were some factions who said, you know, we're all working class, actually. Um, you know, the, it, there are various reasons for thinking this, but... Like the university is the factory. The university is the factory. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we are being kind of trained to be the next, you know, high value labor force, just like, you know, machine operators were 30 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, whatever. I mean, there's different versions of this analysis, um, but that was one kind of analysis. Another kind of analysis was, we're the petite bourgeoisie. And... As it happens, we should, all, we should all be ashamed and embarrassed. Of right, we, should all, we should all be ashamed and embarrassed of ourselves. And uh, you know what that means is that we need to literally transform our class identity by going and, as they would put it, industrializing, uh, getting jobs in factories and mines and mills and so on. What the Aaron Reich said was that both of these are mistaken, uh, and instead, what we need to understand is the distinctive history of the American middle class and the way it's developed over the course of the 20th century. When Marx and Engels in the manifesto talk about the middle class being destroyed, that prediction more or less came true. And that was the destruction of the petite bourgeoisie, as in small property owners, you know, shopkeepers, 
people like that, um, you know, small scale artisans, you know, the rise of industrial capitalism did not literally wipe them out, but, you know, for all intents and purposes. However, monopoly capital emerging in the early 20th century required a new middle class that it then generated of professionals and managers whose job was to administer it and to manage its contradictions. This group, for which they coined the phrase PMC, the you know, professional managerial class, PMC, uh, this group has always had a somewhat antagonistic relationship to the actual bourgeoisie, the actual owners of capital, because its own logic of reproduction is, you know, meritocratic, technocratic, right? It's about the application of knowledge to social, social and scientific and technical problems. And it's organized around that application of knowledge and rewards those who excel in various ways at that application of knowledge. Whereas that, the accumulation of capital, although it needs technicians who can apply their knowledge, doesn't value knowledge in the same way, right? So there's an inherent, although the capitalist class needs the PMC in, in 20th century history, uh, there's an inherent tension. And that tension manifests in the lives of PMC members as economic pressure on their professions. As capital decides, oh, actually, we don't need to pay for, you know, this many engineers to work on this many fine pieces of this problem. You know, one of you can just figure it out. Uh, or, you know, we don't need to pay for this many university professors to teach English or whatever, right? Um, so, that- Or we don't need to pay for this many engineers. One will keep on staff. The rest will hire on contract. Exactly. With the university example. Exactly. So that antagonism, therefore, creates the possibility of a solidarity between the PMC and the working class whose job it is to control. But because its job is to control the working class, there also obviously is a possibility, to say the least, of antagonism between the PMC and the working class. So they kind of develop this framework, and then they say, this is what's happened in in the 60s, is that you've had a kind of really intense PMC radicalism that's developed, uh, that's become quite self-critical of its role in the reproduction of society, but has nonetheless been unable to bridge the gap with the working class, right? To actually overcome that structural antagonism. And to do that, we have to understand our own social role more fully and take it upon ourselves to dismantle it. So they were kind of very praiseful of and part of a movement in the 70s to uh, radicalize the professions in different ways. And uh, that movement had its greatest organizational expression in a group called the New American Movement, which eventually in the early 80s merged with the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee to form today's DSA. I think, you know, the Ehrenreichs thought that the PMC was going into its crisis of de-skilling and disintegration in the 70s. And that, you know, much like Marx in the 1840s, they kind of had the right idea in the wrong timing. And that in fact, you know, the PMC its members kind of allied themselves with the Democratic Party, tried to reconstruct their own uh, life chances and career paths based on on that alliance and became a key strut of neoliberalism. They became part of a key social basis for the Atari Democrats. Right, exactly. Um, and the people that, uh, the sort of thing that Lily Geismer talks about. Precisely. And, you know, one of the classic ways, the kind of mechanical ways of identifying a social class is, does it have a political party that represents its interests? <laughs> um, 
Now, I don't think that, that you can really apply that as a rule in general, but you know, I think it's fair to say basically that the PMC took over the Democratic Party. Then, you know, uh, increasingly found that its economic fortunes, it couldn't, it couldn't shield itself from its alliance with capital that way. And its economic fortunes were disintegrating. And, you know, this I think is present all around us in accumulation of debt, the frustrated career prospects. And so that process of the destabilization of the life course and, you know, career prospects and, uh, you know, class uh, privileges that once adhered to professional careers, I think is the, you know, I think probably most people would agree with me if I said that's the main economic engine of the radicalization of the younger generation and uh, is the main, generates this, the economic basis for the main kind of social group that populates DSA. Not the, it's not all this, right? But it's, it's the main, it's the main constituency and the main kind of activist cadre of the Sanders campaign. Again, I understand that many, many working class people found something traditionally working class people, right? Found something very resonant and powerful about the Sanders campaign. You know, people working at Walmart, giving Bernie 27 bucks, all this kind of thing, which is really important. Uh, but we also have to draw an analytical distinction between an organized activist participatory kernel and a kind of larger penumbra of people who were motivated and supportive in some way. Point taken. But then what does it reveal that Bernie was able to combine his PMC core support with working with a substantial number of working class votes, while Warren really could not. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it tells us that we should pursue a socialist politics that is kind of class conscious and militant, and that that you know Bernie opened but could not complete that project. Uh, I also think, however, that we have to under we have to think about and understand why it is that you know, Bernie's ability to deliver for him, Bernie struggled to fully deliver the kind of working class support that, you know, he had in moments, right? That there was a possibility that he couldn't totally realize. You know, it seems to me that the campaign had a theory of class, of social class, implicit theory of social class, sort of like what I was criticizing earlier, uh, you know, that the working class is out there waiting for someone to call its name, basically. Um, as opposed to understanding it as being unevenly composed of disparate elements that are in turn unevenly organized in ways that make them unevenly receptive to the campaign. So, you know, I think all of us who were enthusiastic about the Bernie campaign understood that we were reverse engineering the normal process for socialist politics, which is like you build a working class movement, you, you know, organize unions, you have strikes, you get bigger and bigger. I mean, this is like from the 19th century. Uh, but it's just a shot a shot we had to take. But yeah, we have the shot, we got to take it. And then we'll figure out how to backfill the stuff that we didn't do once our guy is in charge of, you know, the imperial hegemon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think it made sense to take that shot. I'm glad we did. Uh, and I think it will pay rewards that we haven't seen yet. But I also think we should really take seriously the lesson of its failure. Uh, or the many lessons of its failure. One of which is that the working class is not socially organized. And so we have to build out from our pockets of existing social organization, one of which is the downwardly mobile PMC. And that means a whole host of things, I think, about what people who that describes should do with themselves. My own personal thing is 
I think lots of us work in institutional contexts that bring us into contact with people from other social backgrounds. Uh, you know, if you work in a school system, if you work even at a university, if you work at a tech company, you have the opportunity to be in contact with uh, across the kind of uneven spread of working class composition. And in fact, a lot of the story of increasing militancy over the last few years is about this in some way. You know, Tech Workers Coalition, for example, really took off after its uh, early members participated in support work for organizing of like bus drivers and cafeteria workers in Silicon Valley campuses, right? And so there was a connection there across a kind of traditional divide that caused some number of tech workers to recognize in their own experience, not of economic exploitation necessarily, but of the sexism and racism of the industry. I'm getting this from Ben Tarnoff, by the way. Uh, I just want to credit him. Uh, the sexism and racism of the industry. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a good essay. To recognize some uh, homology between that and you know what the cafeteria workers or the bus drivers were talking about. And, you know, I think that is a really strikingly different way of thinking about it than imagining that because we're socialists, we are the working class already, and people who aren't with us already must be, you know, petit bourgeois or something like that, right? Instead, you actually have to identify and look hard at the specifics of your own situation and your own, own the contradictions that shape us all individually in order to identify the possibilities of solidarity with people who are different from us. And if we can't do that, then the whole project is dead. But I think we can do that is the thing. We have lots of examples of doing that. How do you see today's left debate over the PMC compared to the one that prevailed in the 70s? And relatedly, how has the economic condition of the PMC changed since then? We, we once again have a bit of a push for PMC socialists to get working class jobs, but it seems like a lot less doctrinaire of a matter than half a century ago, in part because many of the people getting trades jobs, for example, are earnestly attracted to the relatively high wages that unionized construction workers make compared to service and even much of white collar labor opportunities. And then people, of course, are intentionally becoming teachers and nurses for political reasons. But, but revealingly, those are working class jobs that once upon a time might have been considered professional occupations. Yeah, well, I think uh, that really points up for us the possibilities of solidarity that the Ehrenreichs grasped in theory, but that weren't really there empirically, or at least they couldn't, their milieu could not figure out how to capture and make real. The degradation of professional work that has happened, you know, I think does in some way level the economic playing field. I mean, you know, I'll take my own experience as an example of this. So I came into you know, labor activity as a graduate student, which is a pretty common path, you know, these days. And I happened to be in graduate school on a campus where there was an ongoing struggle for graduate student unionism that was very closely connected, uh, organizationally basically integrated with the clerical workers union and the service maintenance workers union. So that made it, you know, possible to see the poss real possibility of a kind of solidarity across, you know, divisions of race and we might sort of say class and certainly also gender that structured that workforce because we're all organizationally connected to each other. And it also made it possible 
to, uh, you know, say to graduate students with a straight face, truthfully, you know, the, you're, the custodian who cleans your office is in a really strong union and has really strong protections against harassment on the job, against arbitrary layoff. Their wages go up every year by, you know, X amount, such that they make, uh, you know, often 50% more than you do as a graduate student. They have, they have retirement benefits that you don't have. They have, you know, dental benefits and so on that you don't have. <laughs> so, you know, the idea of joining an organization with that person should not be so unthinkable to you. And that that argument didn't win every time, right? It's not that people simply caved to the kind of economic logic of solidarity, because in fact, there were all sorts of obstacles for, you know, a theoretical physicist to want to be in an organization with the person who cleaned his office. But it wasn't a crazy idea. And, you know, similarly, for the person who cleaned the office, you really could make a case that is really worth investing. Your solidarity in, you know, this theoretical physicist's union, because in fact, you know, the struggle of graduate student, students, while it's not identical, we shouldn't try to collapse it into, you know, what custodial workers might be experiencing, right? There is sexual harassment on this job, just as there is for custodial and, you know, dining hall workers. There's racial discrimination on this job is, you know, not the same kind, but every science lab I ever, every science department I ever organized in, people would describe to me the sweatshop lab, which would be a lab staffed entirely by Chinese graduate students who were expected to work much harder than white students. So is that the same as the anti-Black racism that happens in, you know, in, in clerical work? No, but you can draw that connection, right? And, you know, there are versions of that story, I think, across the economy, across our society. The tech worker campus struggle is in some ways parallel to that. Um, you know, I mean, what's going on in hospitals is in some way parallel to that, you know, as doctors find themselves to have less and less power over the administration of their own work. Nurses certainly find themselves have less and less power over, over the administration of their work, uh, you know, struggle with understaffing and wage compression and, you know, may be able to find in that the possibility of solidarity with the people who work in the cafeteria, the people who clean the room, the nursing assistant, it's not guaranteed. There are huge obstacles to it, uh, but it's it's something that I think we can envision uh, because of the process that we've been talking about. In terms of like strategy for what individuals should do with themselves, you know, I think it's important for us to look around in the situations in which we find ourselves for these kinds of opportunities for solidarity. But you know, I think it's good if people want to become carpenters or nurses or teachers or whatever with a political agenda in mind. I think uh, you know the cadre industrializing program of the 1970s did yield real important historical gains, not in a systematic way, but, you know, in a scattershot way. And, you know, far be it for us to say that we have no use for something like that. You know, in particular, I think that the labor movement is so beaten down and defensive that it's unable to envision some of the larger possibilities that might emerge, you know, in the right historical conjuncture. And, uh, I think an organization like DSA, for example, can can invest energy in organizing people who are not going to yield dues-paying membership through an NLRB process in the foreseeable future, but might actually nonetheless be part of an important upsurge either within unions or in unorganized workplaces. I think you know the systematic details of what a strategy like that looks like has to have to get hashed out in political struggle inside organizations because to work precisely, they have to represent significant 
social participation and support. Uh, and so I don't think it makes sense to say, well, we should, you know, uh, send people into the carpenters, but not the electricians or, you know, nurses, but not teachers or something like that. I think we have to struggle with one another over where and how to invest our energies that way. Well, Gabe Winant, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Nice talking to you. Gabe Winant is a professor of history at the University of Chicago. His book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Manufacturing and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, will be published by Harvard University Press in March of this year. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the real intellectual wealth of the individual depends entirely on the wealth of his real connections. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. And I read them and they warm my heart. But most importantly, spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 